Well, good morning. Great to see you guys here and online. And I want to thank you guys right over here. Kristen, I tell you what, thank you. You led me in worship. I'm looking across the stage and I, I'm, I'm looking at the, the motions to making the darkness tremble. And I've decided, what, what's, what, what is this? I can't, I'm not turning back. I'm not going back. And uh, thank you guys, all of you. you. You led me. Thank you. So do you guys, you know what day Friday was? February 22nd. Yeah, National Margarita Day, yep. Uh, that's true. What else? Somebody said Washington. Don't say Washington's birthday. His birthday's, it was not the 22nd. Somebody looked it up. I'm surprised you guys don't know. Friday was National Walking the Dog Day. Do you guys, how many dog lovers we got here? Okay. All right. So in honor of National Walking the Dog Day, somebody gave this to me. Just thought you'd be interested to know, you know, the, that, that joke about uh, how many uh, Florida Gator fans does it take to change a light bulb, you know? <laughs> I'm not even touching that. I'm not going there. But how many dogs does it take to change a light bulb? I, you know, why don't we let different dogs answer that question? So let's take a golden retriever, for example. Uh, when a golden retriever receives that question, this is what, what he'd say. The sun's shining, the day's young, we've got our whole lives ahead of us, and you're inside worrying about a stupid burned out light bulb? Get out here and play. How about a Rottweiler? What would a Rottweiler say? I think the Rottweiler would say, make me. You change your own light bulb. How about a lab? What would the lab say? Oh, me, 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 please, let me change the light bulb. Can I, can I, hell, huh? Can I, please, 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 please. I don't want to change it, I don't want to change it. <laughs> How about a German shepherd? What would the German shepherd? I'll change it as soon as I lead these people from the dark, check to make sure I haven't missed any, and make one more perimeter patrol to see that no one has tried to take advantage of the situation. I'll be back. That's a good German Shepherd. How about Jack Russell Terrier? Buddy, here got a Jack Russell Terrier. You know what they would say? Well, sure, I'll change the light bulb. I'll just pop it in while I'm bouncing off the walls and furniture. Boing, boing, boing. Old English sheepdog. What would he say? Light bulb? I'm sorry, but I don't see a light bulb. <laughs> Cocker Spaniel, <laughs> why change the light bulb? I can still pee on the carpet in the dark. <laughs> Chihuahua, yo quiero taco bulb. A greyhound, uh, if anybody has a greyhound, you don't take a greyhound for a walk, he takes you for a walk, I'm very well aware of that, but the greyhound would answer the question, it isn't moving, so who cares? <laughs> Finally, I'll give you one more. The toy poodle. This is how the toy poodle would answer that question. I'll just blow in the border collie's ear and he'll do it for me. <laughs> and by the time he finishes rewiring the house, my nails will be dry. <laughs> oh. 
So happy walking the dog day, just so you know. All right, I'll shift to a serious question. How many people can turn the light on in their journey? How many people can turn the light on in their lives, in their story, in their situations? The Apostle John would have answered that question this way. He would have said, the people that can turn the light on are the people that believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing have life in his name. They're the people that can turn the light on in their journey. I've got a friend who's been a prison chaplain, a prison pastor for many, many years. Phenomenal, phenomenal man. And he's gained the trust of tons of Department of Corrections officials here in Florida, but he's now, he's been out in Colorado for many years. He's in uh, now regularly visiting one of the most maximum security prisons in the United States, one of the most hopeless places around. And I was having dinner with him this past week, and he shared about how there was one inmate as hard as stone, but they'd been walking through the gospel, looking at John's gospel. And he'd been sharing the gospel with him, but he went, this, this guy was, was just not ready to trust Jesus. And then uh, a few weeks ago, Dan came in to meet with him, and he was behind bars, but he was in a cell, and they were talking. And Dan looked at him and immediately said, the light's come on, hasn't it? And that inmate looked at him, tears welled up in his eyes and says, yeah, the light's on. I trusted Jesus. That's how you turn the light on. And I'm just so grateful the way that John's gospel impacted that. Now, if you weren't here last week, we're beginning a journey that will last a few weeks, maybe a little bit longer than that. We'll take some breaks here and there. Uh, it will go more than a few weeks, trust me on that. Uh, anybody think 2023, uh, the year 2023? Just kidding. But <clears throat> John was one of Christ's disciples. But you say that, and it, if you've been in church for a while, it kind of becomes a, almost a cliche. John was a passionate young man. He was a teenager when Jesus met him. He and his brother James, they were, their dad was a fisherman on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They were known as Sons of Thunder. That was a nickname they had. I don't know why they had it, maybe because they lived life large and exuberantly and passionately. Maybe it was temper, who knows? It's probably all of the above. But they had gotten to know this young 30-year-old rabbi, maybe a little bit. We don't know how much. But what we do know is one day when they were repairing their, their dad's fishing nets, Jesus came up and finally popped the question. And he said, there's more a summons than a question. And he said, follow me. And so they did. And for three years, John walked closely with Jesus, actually was very possibly his best friend. He was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the one that Jesus entrusted his mother Mary to. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, John, take care of mom. It was John that was leaning against Jesus' shoulder in the Last Supper. So for three years, he walked with Jesus. He talked with him. He ate with him. 
He watched him laugh. He watched him cry. He watched him sleep. He watched him tell jokes. He watched him teach profound things. He watched him heal people. He watched him do miracles. And he was led at the end of his life by the Holy Spirit to write out his evangelion, his glad tidings, his gospel. All his other companions were dead, martyred for their faith in Jesus. John alone reached old age in terms of one of the disciples. And so he wrote this gospel that's a bit different. It's like an orange compared with the three apples of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in this gospel that we're taking a journey through, we just started last week. This whole notion of the light of Christ's life is front and center. If you ask John, how many people does it take how many people does it take to grapple with the light? He would say, as many as want to grapple with Jesus. How many people can turn the light on their journey? As many as will trust Him. And so we introduced us last week to Jesus in His prologue. If you've got your Bible, turn to John chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, go to our welcome desk. We'll give you one as a gift. This is what we studied last week, so I'm just going to read through it and comment real quick. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. So we talked last week about being in a dark room and it having four walls and a window in each wall, and if we're going to awaken as a human being and let the light shine in our journey and come alive, it will involve engaging with the light of Jesus. And it's like a curtain was, is taken back on each of those four windows. And each time more and more light comes in. And then finally, when all four curtains are open, you have the full light, a full view of the light of Jesus. Here, John describes those four windows in one sense. The first one is his supremacy in that first verse. He is above all. You got to grapple with that. You got to grasp that. You got to submit to that reality. If you're going to enjoy and experience and, 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 and appropriate the light of, of the light of Christ. Verse three, here's the next, uh, the next one. He says, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. I've got to engage with his creativity of me. The fact that he knows me. If anybody's going to shed light on my journey, it's got to be the person that made me and knows best how I operate. He keeps going. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. That's the vibrancy. That's that third window. The curtain brought back and the light of his vibrancy joins the light of his creativity and supremacy in my life. But then the final window is open in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. His ability is the fourth window. So if I'm going to turn the light on in my journey, I've got to engage with Christ's supremacy over me, His creativity of me, His, his vibrancy that he wants to give to me for his glory, not for self-improvement, self-actualization, not happy clappy, but a vibrancy that throbs with the life of God. And he says, and above, I've got the ability. That's what we were singing a minute, a minute ago. The darkness cannot overcome it. The darkness that wants to conquer him shedding his light abroad in you and your journey, darkness, there's no darkness that's greater than him. So that's how John began. 
his gospel. You know well how he finished it. We've looked at it many times. We will continue to do so. John 20, 31. These things have written that you may b- believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And uh, for many of you, this is review, but some of you brand new. So get this. This is a reference point. John says there are two reasons I've written my gospel. The reason uh, that you might believe both for orthodoxy and believe for vibrancy. Part A, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Orthodoxy is right belief. So making sure we understand who Jesus is, what he claimed, understanding that, having the right framework in terms of our, our view of Scripture and view of Jesus, our theology, all of that, absolutely necessary. But that orthodoxy should lead to vibrancy. He says, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that vibrancy is throbbing with the life of God. It's being fully alive. It's why our vision is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. It's because we believe that is the foundational call of the gospel. Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life, have it to the full. And again, it's not this self-improvement business. It's a restoration. It's a redemption. Restoring us to the original purpose we're made for, and that is to be fully alive to the glory of God. So what's it look like? I wasn't planning on doing this until last week. I gave you guys a pop quiz, and so you, you scored about a 70 so we're, we're going to try it again. For three weeks, we went over the ABC's 10 characteristics of being fully alive. Uh, we had bookstore, bookmarks in the bookstore. I think they're out, but they'll get some more. You can go online to northernchurch.net slash fully alive and get a full review, but you can't do that now, and it's time for the pop quiz. Oh. If I'm going to be fully alive today as I'm moving into the day, or as I looked at the day that I just had, was I fully alive? It will have everything to do with, was I living with a sense of awe, a sense of worship, all of life engagement into the mystery and the majesty of who God is. Fully alive people get that, but fully alive people also get brokenness. We live in a fallen world. Following Jesus is an exemption card to, our, to, to broken experiences, but the gospel enables me to take a broken experience, submit to his refining hand, and see him grow me through that. See him not call me to run from brokenness, but to engage with brokenness underneath his sovereignty and his grace. Fully alive people engage in creativity. Okay, it's waning here. We've got to pick up the energy. We were created in his image. So in our vocations, and our conversations, to be creative to His glory. It's how we're wired and made. But we're also to be walking in depth. Fully alive people are not superficial people. Deep people that engage with what's going on in our lives under the, under the illumination of the Word of God. And we, we see the meaning behind the events. But it's not just about us. Engagement. Oh, good job. Engaging people to be fully alive. It's about engaging the people around us with the life of the gospel. Outreach, evangelism, service, compassion, justice, making sure that we understand that we're, if we're fully alive, we will be life-giving with the people around us. And we'll not just do it alone, we'll do it together because we'll be walking in fellowship, moving away from the cliche, just fellowship and a cookie, but engaging with the commonality that we have in the gospel through Christ abiding with us. We fully image Him when we're walking together. And we're also needing to be fully alive people, walk in generosity. What He lavishes on us, mercy, grace, truth, 
finances, time, abilities, all of that we give. We give it back as generous men and women, and we do it from the heart. Heart is not emotion only. It includes my emotion, but my mind, my will, my heart is my center to fully alive people are following Jesus with all their heart. Passionate, thinking deeply, feeling authentically, acting intentionally. And we're doing it underneath a deep privilege on a daily basis, walking in intimacy with the Father. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom you sent. So an intimate, personal relationship with Him and realizing that every day is one step along the journey. This journey that God has taken definitively through history to the point where once again the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so engaging with an understanding that that is vibrancy. That is what it looks like to have light in our journey. There's plenty more where that came from, but here's the question, how? How, how do I... How do I do it? What's involved? John says, first you need to make sure you're focused on the light of the world and his supremacy and his creativity and his vibrancy and his ability. But now let's go to the next passage where he unpacks how this journey begins. Once we've seen Jesus, what do we need to do? John chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is not referring to John the Apostle. That's referring to John the Baptist. And John's gospel is different than the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he does do something similarly, and this is one. All of them, they began with John the Baptist at the beginning. There's something authoritative about this, this initial voice in the wilderness crying out that the Messiah has come. And so John's wanting to make sure that we click into, he was sent, there was something significant. There's something about this light, this, this light coming from the life of this one who was supreme over all, that someone was sent to testify. And John's implying, I've been sent to testify as have others. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. By the way, we'll look more at John the Baptist here in a couple of weeks. So that all through him, so that through him all might believe. There's that word believe again. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, meaning John the Baptist was not the light. He came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So he's continuing to describe Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The preposterous nature of that. Here's the application for some of you. I don't know who. It came to me long ago. It was, a, it was one of those, the one who's causing the electrical impulse in my heart to beat right now goes unrecognized by us. That's the dichotomy. He's going to, though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. You know what? I don't need you, Jesus, to be a normal human being. Are you kidding me? I need Jesus for the next beat of my heart to happen. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. That's referring to the, the Jews. Yet to all, and now we're going to camp in verse 12 and 13 here. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I want you to back up. Read that again, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who did what? That was uh, not the best effort. Those who believed in his name. How does this thing, this journey start looking to Jesus? Then what do I do as I'm looking at this Jesus described in verse 1 through 5? Here we go. Three ingredients that are at the beginning of that journey of turning the light on. How do I turn the light on? Number one, believe. Belief is necessary. What's involved in turning the light on? You can't get past initially. It's belief. He says those who believed in his name. And you look over and over in John's gospel. He keeps bringing up this whole notion of belief. Now, some, some people, they want to say, well, I'm not a believing person. I'm not a person of faith. We're all faith people. We're all believers, not necessarily believers in Jesus, but we're all, we, we, we act on faith every day, whether it's turning the light switch on, uh, believing that that will cause the lights to come on, or, believe, or stepping onto a plane, believing that that plane is capable of defying the law of gravity. But it's believing in Jesus, it's directing that belief to Him. And over and over, you see throughout the gospel, this coming up, John 3, 16, that famous text, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 5, 24 and 25, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me. So it's not just hearing, it's believing has eternal life, will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. They've awakened at that moment. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming, Jesus said, and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Those who hear and believe will turn the light on. John 20, 31, we just read it, see it again. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So what's believing look like? We looked at this last fall, talked about that common belief that everybody exhibits is exercised when we sit down in a chair. When I sit in a chair, I'm believing that chair is going to hold me up. But sitting down isn't the first part of it. There are actually three ingredients. I want to cover those compared to a chair, as well as the bigger, more important issue of, of, of looking at the gospel. And these are a review of what we looked at last fall. Three in, uh, ingredients of belief. First is appraisal. Second is agreement. Third is action. I do this without thinking now, because I've been walking around on this planet for so long. But I notice, is a chair trustworthy? I appraise it. I take an appraisal of all right, yeah, it's, it's strong enough. You did that when you sat down. You just trusted that we've, our, our facilities folks are as sharp as they can be, which they are, and they keep those chairs operating in, in good condition. But the appraisal is necessary. But for me to sit in that chair and to truly believe that chair, that's only part of it. Then I need to evaluate, is that chair relevant for my need? Am I tired, or is the social situation such that I need to sit in a chair? If, if, my, if there's, there's that agreement that that chair is relevant to me, so I've, I've done an appraisal that it's credible and strong enough, I've done, I've done agreement here that it's relevant, but I still haven't believed in it fully. I don't believe it until I actually sit in it. I take an action. 
The action is sitting. I'm depending on this chair right now. I'm depending on this chair fully to hold me up. Now translate that to the gospel. It's it's an appraisal of Jesus, an appraisal of the gospel. Is the gospel true? Did he really rise from the dead or did he not? If he didn't, we're wasting our time, we're told in Corinthians. But if he did, he invited Thomas to poke around, say, Thomas, Hear my hands, feel my hands, my side. Yeah, it's me. So I appraise whether Jesus is credible. Then I evaluate, is he relevant to my need? My need for forgiveness, my need for heaven, my need to be restored in the original purpose that I'm made for as a human being. But if I agree there, I still haven't exercised biblical belief until I trust him until I take the action of depending on Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to trust you. I realize I, I have rebelled against God. That rebellion is because you're infinite is an infinite offense, and an infinite offense requires an infinite payment. An infinite payment would have taken me forever to pay, but you've come as the infinite God, man. You died in my place, and you said if anyone would believe that what you did was for them, and to receive you as, as King and Savior, and I believe that now, and I, I want to engage. The light's starting to come on right now. That actually, this is what happened in Dan's friend's life, the inmate. He had, they had been doing Bible studies and appraising the credibility of Jesus, smart guy that he was walking him through. He saw the, was beginning to see the relevance, and then That week when Dan was gone, he said, he completed the cycle of biblical belief. This goes back, I mean, the reformers, uh, they referred to this. What does saving faith look like? It's it's, it's that uh, notitia, it's what they called the appraisal, the the assensus, assenting agreement, fiducia was the actual trusting. Those three, if I understand all three of those, I'm grappling and grasping belief fully. And people say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it. (laughs) If this chair is not strong enough, I don't care. If it's put together with scotch tape, I don't care how much I believe it will hold me up. It's not going to hold me up. The most important thing initially is not how much faith I've got, but how strong the object of my faith is. And Jesus says, bring it on. Even a little faith I can do a lot with. Trust me believe. But the second ingredient to turning the light on is not just belief. The second really happens when I believe. We'll call it birth. It's being born. What believing is, is being born. And it's being born, and I almost hesitate to use the phrase because it's become a cliché. People have made fun of it, but it's straight from Scripture, being born again. Go back to the text, verse 12. Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Now look at verse 13. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. 
born into the light, darlus, the Spanish phrase, I mentioned this on Christmas Eve, means to give birth, but literally means to be born into the light. What happens at that moment that I believe is a new birth takes place? What I need in my journey to turn the light on is not image management or behavior modification. It's not going and sitting in a church. As they say, sitting in a church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus any more than going and sitting in a garage makes you a car. There's something that has to happen on the inside. John chapter 3, we'll get there. It'll be a few years, but we'll, we'll get to John 3. Nicodemus, a big Orthodox guy, he was a leader in the church, very religious guy. He had his doctrinal T's crossed and I's dotted, but he knew there was something Jesus, was there something about Jesus, so he snuck over to him in the night, covered by the cloak of darkness, so that his contemporaries, his, uh, his other associates, wouldn't see that he was going to talk to this rabbi who was causing so much racket. He didn't want to mess with his career and risk his position, but he went to Jesus. And John 3, verse 3, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Uh, Nicodemus asked, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. By the way, in John chapter 6, uh, Jesus says it's the Spirit who gives life, and we'll get there as well. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. What we need is a new birth. And that believing is not just a religious affiliation, a transformation happens. This week in the hall here at the office, we were talking about Capital One, the, the, uh, the credit card company, and uh, but for several reasons in terms of the, some of the stuff that we're doing, but uh, one of the questions came up, what do you think of when you think of Capital One? Of course, you think of their commercials and what's in your wallet now. I, I think Capital One should sponsor this sermon. Uh, I've been given all this free time. But, but I, when we were saying that, I remembered there was a commercial years ago, I think it came out on the, this, in the Super Bowl, but it was, these, it was a Capital One commercial. These barbarians are running through a department store. They pass the perfume area, and the woman, the clerk behind the counter gets some perfume and sprays it at them, you know, hoping to c- clean them up a little bit. What you and I need is not a little spray, not a little superficial treatment, not gussing it up. And that's the danger of religiosity, is people are, are, are deceived into thinking, if I just change a couple of superficial things on the outside, that's great. Jesus didn't come to do behavioral modification or make me religious. He came to bring me back from the dead. He came to bring me out of darkness into light, and I cannot accomplish that on my own. When I believe... I'm born again. And though that's a phrase that has been 
derided in our culture. It's straight from the lips of Jesus, so I will use it without apology, and I will ask you point blank, as fellow human beings, some friends, some people I don't know yet, but every one of you I care deeply about, and one of the most important questions that I could ask you right now that's a yes or no question, don't answer it out loud, but it is this question. It's the question that Jesus would ask you, are you born again? Yes or no? You know the answer to that. Don't think that your family does. Could be your family thinks you are and you know you're not. Could be their church people, co-workers. It's the same as me asking you, have you believed in Jesus? And I'm not saying believed and saying he's cool. I'm not saying, well, yeah, I think he could be a benefit to me. I'm talking about bowing the knee and submitting my life. And when this happens, I'm born again. Peter writes, he says, let me tell you, you were not redeemed with some perishable seed. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, for you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was, that was preached to you. Have you been born into the light? And guys, I am, I'm sorry is not enough. I'm heartbroken over how that phrase has been hijacked by a skeptical culture. But it's just you and me right now. And really, it ain't me. It's just you and Jesus. He knows if you've been born again. Right after I believed... I didn't look any different on the outside, but there was a transformation that had taken place. Ezekiel says, my heart of stone was transformed to a heart of flesh. Jesus in John 13, he tells his disciples, he says, guys, I'm going to go and I'm going to send my spirit. Taking up residence in me to enable me to be like Jesus, to enable me to walk in vibrancy to the glory of God, to enable me to turn the light on. And if you have, are not born again, my second question is, don't you want to be? Not, don't you want to become one of those religious weird people? There are plenty of religious weird people that aren't born again. They're just religious weird people. To be born again is to become normal according to what God has designed for humanity. We're peculiar people when compared to everybody around us, but we're the most normal human beings in accordance with how God originally made us. Grapple with it. Come on down front afterwards. Grab me in the foyer. Grab somebody else with an orange lanyard and say, I'm ready to be born again. Go back into that back prayer room afterwards. Guys, don't leave here. Don't keep putting this off. Why would you want to keep living in the dark? How do I turn the light on? These three things are simultaneous. First is belief. Second is birth. Third is belonging. Which is a really fun thing. When you believe you're born again, the Spirit takes up residence in you, and we are at that point fully alive, but then it will determine will we experience being fully alive or not. And some of it has to do with how much we'll embrace this characteristic, belonging. Go back to the text, verse 12, yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right, 
to become children of God. When you believe, you're born again, and now you belong. There's some people that talk about the universal fatherhood of God. The Scriptures do not teach that. Some liberal circles will say, you know, it's everybody, the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. And the Scriptures say, He's my father when I become his child, when I become his son or his daughter through Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith, trusting Him. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. So that belonging, when I believe I'm born again, I now belong. And it's, it, there's a vertical belonging and a horizontal belonging that's, that's embedded in that phrase, children of God. Here, the, the vertical belonging is belonging to God. Belong to Him as my Abba. Abba is the word that Jesus taught to pray. It's what you and I in English would say is daddy. And you can imagine a child saying, Abba, Abba, Abba. It's not disrespectful. It's, it's intimate. Daddy. I read about a guy named Todd who his kids every now and then would mess around with him, but instead of calling him dad, they'd call him Todd. And they'd say, don't call me Todd. Everybody else calls me Todd, and you're not everybody else. You're my son and my daughter. And they actually started doing it, I think, just to get him to give them that speech because they loved hearing that they're not everybody else. He's daddy. He's the one who wants to be intimate with us. Kids of the king. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, in love, God predestined us for adoption. He chose you and me to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace in which He has freely given us in the one He loves. He chose us. He says, I want to know you. I had a friend. Well, I still have that friend. Uh, but he was, he's adopted, and for years he would joke around about Thanksgiving. First it started in college about when we'd go home for Thanksgiving, he'd say, yeah, your parents have to take you back at Thanksgiving, but mine, I'm adopted. They want me to come home for Thanksgiving. You <laughs> see, my parents chose me. They were stuck with you. <laughs> your parents were stuck with you. And there's a joke, but there's some truth to that. And at adoption, you were selected. You're chosen. First John chapter 3, verse 1. John says, guys, he's writing, he says, get a load of this. What great love the Father has lavished on us. Great, the word is potapos. I've said it before, it means basically get a load of this. It's uh, bust out the, 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 the sides and walls. What great love the Father has lavished on us. He didn't dole it out, lavished on it, backed up the dump truck of his love and just said, beep, 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 here you go. I'm embracing you as my son or my daughter. And you say, I don't deserve it. And I say, that's correct, but I've chosen to 
to love you, to begin a relationship with you. And that's why I sent my son Jesus to take care of the sin part. And I've clothed you with his righteousness. And he says that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. Belonging. Belonging not just to a religious institution. Belonging to, to Jesus. I was going to read through that, just, just time would prevent it, but over and over you see in, in the New Testament about how, uh, how much we are loved. And, and John, that, that saying that he's the disciple whom Jesus loved, he was giving, as Michelle talked about, he was giving the most significant thing about him. He wasn't saying, I'm loved, nobody else is. But I get it. I'm loved by him. J.I. Packer, when I was a young believer, read a book called Knowing God. It's powerful. Packer writes this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Am I loved? Do I really believe that Jesus has taken care of the sin? And the Father wants to embrace me and call him Abba. Brennan Manning in his book, uh, one of his many books called Abba's Child, he t- writes about a pastor who visited uh, a man that was dying of cancer. He was under hospice care at home. And the pastor came in, had not told the family that he was coming. And he came into the room, and the man was propped up on two pillows, and right next to the head of his bed was a chair turned, just a straight back chair turned towards him. And the pastor said, I, I didn't think you were expecting me. And the man says, oh, I, I wasn't, but come on in. And then the man looked at the chair and realized why the pastor said, he said, shut the door, would you? And the pastor shut the door. He thought, that's so strange. And the, the man said, yeah, you're probably thinking because this chair is where it is that I was expecting you were coming. I didn't know you were coming, but this chair stays there all the time. And they began to, to tell him why. He said, for years, I struggled to pray. I, I, I would daydream, I, I would, and finally, one, my best friend said, listen, this is just a, a couple of years ago. I was already struggling enough with cancer. He says, put a, put a chair right in front of you, and imagine Jesus sitting in that chair and just talk to him. And the guy said, that transformed my prayer life. I have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's carried on to when I've been now in hospice and I'm struggling, I can't get out of bed, that's why I have that chair right next to me. And I look there often each day and just look at Jesus and I talk to him. The pastor thought, that's awesome. And the man said, but here's the deal, you cannot tell my daughter. If she catches me talking to a chair, she's going to commit me somewhere else. (laughs) He said, all right, it's our secret. The pastor left. A couple of days later, it wasn't long, the daughter called and said, I just wanted you to know dad died. 
He passed away about sometime this afternoon. I, I left about two o'clock to run some errands, kissed him, and he told me he loved me. And I came back late in the afternoon, and he was dead. The pastor said, was it peaceful? And she says, as far as I can tell, the expression on his face was just was beautiful, but there was one strange thing. And the pastor said, what's that? She said, well, when I came back in to the house, he was partially out of bed and his head was on that chair next to the bed. And that's how he died. She said, I don't know if he was wrestling or something or was trying to get out of bed. And the pastor said, that's not what happened at all. And I'll tell you about it later. He knew he belonged. But we don't just belong vertically. We belong horizontally with one another. We're children, so if I'm a children and you're a children, that makes us both children, which makes us both part of the same family, the same community. So our belonging is with God as our Abba, but it's also with others as our family. It's walking together as fellow members of the body of Christ. I'm a king's kid, you're a king's kid. I'm a son, you're a son, you're a daughter. And it's us walking as His body and imaging Him together as children of God. Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. You are a unique group of people. You're unique because you have believed and as a result you've been born. And because of that, you belong. You belong to the Father who is yours and you belong to one another in community. So treat one another accordingly. Walk together. Image me together embrace this movement called Northland or wherever you are in the world together. God's called us as His family not to come stare at the back of one another's head for an hour and a half on a Sunday when it's convenient, but to walk in community. Yes, celebrate large group, but connect on small groups. Connect in small ways to image Him together. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, a bird called a starling. But they gave a great image. I'm going to ask our worship team to come out. And as they're coming out, I'm going to show you a video of a flock of starlings. And I want you to see it as an illustration of who we can be as His people. Starlings flock together in flocks of hundreds, thousands, and even millions. And they, will, uh, they fly in flocks. And their, their path of flight... Uh, scientists have referred to them as murmurations because of the, the constant change that's taking place. But it seems uniform. They seem to belong together. So scientists have studied them. I read one article. These guys videoed flocks varying in size from 440 to 2,600 starlings. And they've figured out every starling only pays attention to seven other starlings. They're a small group. 
And those seven all are coordinated, and then there's overlap with others. And they, they do life in unison, in beautiful unison. And the pattern of the way they fly in such flocks is not just for beauty, although I think it is to glorify God, but it's also to avoid predators. Because a hawk needs to focus on one particular thing. It doesn't just fly into a stack of them with his mouth open. It's going after one. And because of their closeness and flight patterns, a hawk can't, it's difficult for a hawk to zero in on one. How's that sound for you and me walking in community so the enemy can't pick us off? Take two minutes of your life to get a vision of what the rest of your life can be, walking in community. How cool is that? I mean, I imagine Jesus in that chair next to me saying, Jesus, that is so cool. And I can just hear him saying, isn't it though? And you know what? Matt, you and Northland could be just as beautiful. Actually more so. If you grasp the gospel. If belief and birth, and belonging, turn the light on in all of your lives. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought you about your adoption to sonship. You've been adopted. You're kids. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's kids. Let's stand together and make this proclamation before I give you the good word.